0: Tonight, in the first part of chapter 5, we'll be looking at the confronting authority of Jesus. You might get the PowerPoint up there. Uh, we'll be looking at the confronting authority of Jesus. And next week, we'll be looking at the comforting authority of Jesus. And then in chapter 6, we'll be looking at a tale of two kings, King Herod and King Jesus. Now, if it helps you to follow along, you can find an outline of the talk or a full transcript of the talk out in the foyer on the table, or you can download it from the live stream of the Bundy website. Well, most importantly, keep your Bibles open so that we can look at the verses together that we'll be studying tonight. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father God, we thank you for your word, uh, a word that is living and active, that your spirit can take and cut us to our hearts. That we might know Jesus deeply and that we might live lives that honor him. Help us tonight. Help me to speak your word faithfully, clearly, and boldly, Father, and I pray that you might help us to listen to it as your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Um, When I say the words confronting authority, I wonder who you think of and what situations. You think of. For me, I think of Mr. Heffernan, the deputy principal of my high school. Now, I went to an all boys high school, and when you put enough teenage boys together, you get a collection of morons. Okay? No offense, teenage boys, but you know it's true. And on one of these uh, moronic occasions, a large group of boys from our school who used to go home by train decided that for a few days they'd have a fruit war across train platforms at South Yarra Station. And word was going round. Boys were stockpiling fruit from home, bringing it to school for these battles. And from what I heard, it was epic. Unfortunately, I caught the tram home, and I missed all the action. Well, that week, after several complaints from the public, Mr. Heffernan marched our year level into our school hall, and he absolutely ripped into all of us now, most of the time, Mr. Heffernan was congenial, friendly even, but on this day, he was the Hulk. Okay, that's not a photo of him. That's just a stock photo. But his, his normally fair Irish complexion turned bright red with pulsing rage, and you could see the veins sticking out at the side of his head, and spit was flying out of his mouth. He was furious with us. And this was, for me, an experience of confronting authority, uh, almost frightening authority. Now, I'm sure uh, when you think of confronting authority, you probably do have people in mind. Situations maybe even now that are a bit painful to remember, even years after. Normally, when we think of confronting authority, we never imagine that such authority would be a good thing for us. Normally, we think of it as a negative thing. For example, I remember lockdown, that that terrible period, (laughs) when the police could fine you for just doing exercise on your own. That's that's confronting authority, isn't it? Intimidating, scary, maybe sometimes even abusive at times. But could confronting authority ever be a good thing? I I want you to keep that question in mind because we're going to come back to it. Now, the context we find ourselves in Mark chapter 5 is that for the previous chapters, Mark has been painting this picture of the authority of Jesus, his authority over sickness as he heals a leper and other people of other diseases, Uh, his authority in teaching in the synagogues compared to the teachers of the law. We've seen his authority over people's careers. He, He tells people to follow him and they just give up their professions and they follow him. We've seen the authority of Jesus to forgive sins back in chapter 2 when he forgave the sins of the paralyzed man. But by the end of chapter 4, the authority of Jesus takes on this confronting edge. Jesus and the disciples are caught in a storm on Lake Galilee, a storm so serious that four seasoned fishermen on the boat were scared enough to think that they were all going to drown. And this is what happens. After they wake Jesus up in their fear, verse 39, he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Silence, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Then he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. The disciples see something of the sheer authority of Jesus. They were once scared of the storm, and now they are scared of the one who controls the storm. And I mean, honestly, who can blame them? Who is this? That's the question they're wrestling with. That's the big question, and and that's the important question. And maybe that's you tonight. Maybe that's why you're here at this church. Maybe you're wrestling with that question. Who is this Jesus? And if that's you, that is a great question To wrestle with. And in part, what I want to help you understand tonight is I want you to see the confronting authority of Jesus. We've seen Jesus confronting authority over creation with the storm, but in tonight's passage, we're going to see his confronting authority over demons. And by the end of tonight, I want you to be able to answer these two questions Who is this Jesus, and how should we respond to him? Well, firstly, who is this Jesus? Let's set the scene. Verse 1, they came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. Now, Gerasenes was located on the east side of the Lake of Galilee in northern Israel in an area today known as Kersi. Now, in verse 2, as soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. Now, this is not the first encounter that Jesus has had with someone possessed by an evil spirit. Back in chapter one, Jesus meets a man in a synagogue with an impure spirit, and he demonstrates his authority by driving out that spirit with a simple command. But here in Gerasenes, the power encounter between Jesus and the demonic is, as we're about to find out, many times larger than back in chapter one. Now, let's look at the authority of Jesus. We're going to look at verse, verses 3 to 16. We're going to break it down bit by bit. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that the demons are powerful. We're told in verse 1, this man has an impure spirit. In verse 16, Mark refers to him as a demon possessed man. There are forces that are clearly controlling him, such that he is completely powerless, he's behaving like a beast. In verse 3, he lived in the tombs and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain because he uh, he um, he often had been bound with shackles and chains but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now it sounds like something out of Stranger Things, doesn't it? And you might be tempted to to, to think that this is a made up story, uh, but once I met a missionary sharing about an incident that he witnessed in a church in Indonesia, where a twelve year old girl roared like a lion, and it took four grown men to hold her down due to the sheer strength of whatever was controlling her. You see, demons, it turns out, are real; they're powerful. Now, next point, the people of the area are scared of this man. Uh, This demon-possessed man cannot live with people as far as the people are concerned. They're afraid of him. They attempt to lock him up in their fear, and they can't control him due to the strength of the demons. So as such, he lives amongst the dead, isolated, howling into the night, hurting himself. It's a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? Think of this man as once someone's son. Think of him as someone who lived in a community with friends. And now there is no future for this man. Now the demons know who Jesus is and they're scared of him. Verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him and he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus Son of the Most High God, I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Just as in chapter 1, this evil spirit immediately knows who Jesus is. He recognizes the confronting authority of Jesus. And the spirit is terrified, kneeling before Jesus in some sort of fearful deference. What do you have to do with me? I beg you, don't torment me. This demonic presence from Satan is scared of Jesus. You see, because Jesus is stronger. Verse 9, what is your name? He asked him. My name is Legion, he answered him, because we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. Now, it turns out that there's more than one evil spirit within this man. Legion is its name. Now, a Roman legion... Could contain between five to six thousand soldiers. Now, we're not told exactly how many demons were possessing this man, but clearly it was many, maybe even up to a couple of thousand, as we find out a bit later on. And as powerful as these demons were over this man's life, Jesus is stronger. The spirits know that Jesus is stronger, and that's why they plead with him not to banish them because they want to stay in the region. And to infect another host. Now you see something of the confronting authority of Jesus. Now it's not like Mr. Heffernan, is it? There's no, there's no furious anger or rage. He simply commands the spirit to come out of the man. Now what happens next is probably the most confronting part of the passage. The people that, the part that people focus on and are are troubled with the most. Okay, verse eleven. A large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside and the demons begged him, send us to the pigs so we may enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. The herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. Now here are the questions that people often ask. If Jesus came to battle Satan and his evil spirits, then why would he listen to the demons at all? Now we're not given the answer why, but perhaps the pig incident was to demonstrate to the eyewitnesses just how significant this battle is between Jesus and the evil spirits of Satan, a battle that was part of a war that was leading to a decisive victory of Jesus on the cross over Satan. And perhaps this whole incident is to demonstrate that war that Jesus has come to fight. Now, why the pigs then? There's no indication given why Jesus specifically allowed them to go into the pigs. But remember, Jesus didn't choose the pigs. The demons chose the pigs. Perhaps Jesus allowed this to demonstrate the sheer destructive force that was taking place inside the man. Now, imagine 2,000 pigs. Like this auditorium fills 330 people maximum. Imagine six times that of pigs. Now, the eyewitnesses can't see 2,000 demons, but they can see 2,000 pigs. And therefore, you start to realize the evil power that tormented this man. Does Jesus not like pigs because he's a Jew? Who will think of the pigs? Will no one think of the pigs? There's nothing in this passage that talks about Jesus' attitude towards pigs. And if you focus too much on the pigs, you will lose the point of the incident. Look at what the demons did to the pigs. The demons rushed the pigs into the Sea of Galilee, and they drowned there, perhaps in a desperate attempt to get away from the presence of Jesus. Now, if these demons could cause that much destruction to 2,000 pigs, imagine what they were doing to the man. Here's the important point. Jesus uses his authority for the good of the man. Look at verse 14. The men who tended them ran off and reported it in the town and the countryside, and people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Okay, stop thinking about the pigs. I know some of you are still thinking about the pigs. Think about the man he is completely transformed once the legion has left his body he is once wandering the tombs like a naked raging beast destroying himself terrifying the people and now he is sane sitting down ready to have a cup of tea with jesus the confronting authority of jesus has changed his life forever now why did mark record this in his gospel account, because he's concerned that his readers are able to answer that first question, who is Jesus? And you know what's surprising in this passage? The answer is found on the lips of the demon-possessed man. Verse 7, as he kneels there before Jesus, Jesus, son of the most high God. That's who he is. The confronting authority over all authorities, even over Satan and his demons... Another way the Bible puts it: Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, even over demons. Now, at this point, this application seems a bit meaningless to us, doesn't it? I mean, I mean, does demon possession even happen today here in Australia? Now, absolutely, I think demon possession still happens. Uh, years ago, I attended a conference, and. It was made up of pastors and evangelists from all over the world, and in my small group were two men who were evangelists from Nepal, and I've blanked out their faces for security reasons, and their ministry consisted of walking from village to village, and their strategy as they shared with us was to enter a new village and then share the gospel of Jesus with anyone who would listen in that village. But often what they said was frustrating was that their first encounter was with the local village witch doctor, the shaman, who would be screaming them to leave even before they said who they were, before they opened their mouths. Because the evil spirit residing in that shaman knew exactly who they were and why they came. And so they were telling us this, they were frustrated, but the first thing they often did in the village was to drive out the demon from the shaman so they'd be quiet, so they could share the gospel. Now when they shared this with a group of us, it sounded very much like what you read in the gospels. And I believe these two humble, very rational Christian men, they weren't trying to impress us, they were just telling us what happened in their country, in their ministry. Well, if demon possession is possible, why don't we see it much in Australia? Now, I believe it still can happen in Australia. I've spoken to a couple of people who, who are in ministry who've had this happen to them, but I don't think it's the dominant way that Satan works here. Now, I found this uh, article on the Gospel Coalition website that I think is helpful, written by a Bible college professor called Chuck Lawless. What a great name, Chuck Lawless. Now, I think it's a helpful statement about the different ways that Satan works, referred to here as the enemy. Different cultures. That, in fact, may be the major difference with the enemy's work in animistic cultures, where he wants animists to fear him more. He wants Westerners to fear him less, if at all. If so, his strategy wouldn't preclude possession, and I've heard credible reports of demon possession in North America, but it also wouldn't emphasize it. Holding non-believers in the bondage of naturalism, independence, and idolatry makes more sense in much of North American culture. And I think what he's saying there in America is equally Applicable here in Australia. You see, what Chuck is saying here is that in animistic cultures like Nepal or Malaysia, where I'm from, or some of the countries and cultures where some of you are from, Satan likes people to be scared of the evil spirits. It's true, isn't it? Above the doorframe of my grandmother's house is a little mirror, so demons see themselves and are scared. Now, he wants people in those cultures not to worship God, but to live in fear and the need to appease the demons. But here in Western countries like America, England, or Australia, Satan employs a different strategy. He gets people to deny the existence of demons, so they put their trust wholly in themselves, or science, or technology, or body image, or materialistic greed. Now, in these cultures, we're not scared of demons, are we? But we're scared of all sorts of other things, and Satan has a hand in all of these things. He's smart, you see. His common goal in every culture is to draw people away from God, either through a fear of demons or not believing demons at all. Now, this is what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Whenever we sin against God, there are three things at work. Okay, Ephesians 2, And you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. That's the first thing at work. According to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient, that's another term for Satan, ruler of the power of the air, that's the second thing at work, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. That's the third thing at work, our own sinful nature, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Here is the unholy trinity at work. Okay, part of it is the world, part of it is Satan, and part of it is our own sinful choices because of our own sinful natures. Now, I think here's the great achievement of Satan here in Australia. He's convinced us we're so free, free to be whatever we want, free to do whatever we want, and yet the end result is we're slaves to our own freedom. Now, tell me honestly, okay? After spending an hour mindlessly scrolling on social media on your phone that you feel great about yourself afterwards? That you aren't feeling guilt and shame about your body? That you aren't feeling pangs of FOMO and jealousy at other people's lives and how they're living their best life? Tell me that you're not angry at someone's post. Tell me that you aren't trapped in your insecure need to please people. Tell me that you don't need to lie about how good everything is. Tell me that after 10 straight hours of gaming, you feel great about your use of time. Tell me that you feel incredible freedom after another hidden session of porn. Bravo, Satan. Satan. The Bible calls him the accuser, the tempter, the father of all lies. And he's working powerfully here in Australia. I mean, who are we kidding? We're not free at all, are we? We're slaves shackled to our sin. Now, let me ask you that question from the start of tonight. Could confronting authority ever be a good thing? Could the confronting authority of Jesus ever be a good thing in your life? If the demon-possessed man couldn't free himself, then who is going to free you from Satan's work in your life? You? You think you're going to free yourself? You need someone who has the power to confront Satan. And Jesus is the only one. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he did a number of things. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. There's a lot there, but look at verse 15. On the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he's talking about Satan and Satan's spiritual forces. Jesus has secured a decisive victory in the war against Satan. On the cross, he triumphs over Satan. You can win this war against Satan because Jesus can be your champion. Now, that is why you need the confronting authority of Jesus. When no one else can help you, he can. When you feel alone, helplessly trapped in a cycle of sin and shame, when you feel the enormous burden of guilt, when you feel accused and deceived, Jesus who died for you on the cross is the only one willing to go into battle for you. The only one who is not scared in this passage, everyone is scared. Demons, man, townspeople, but not Jesus. He's the only one who can overcome Satan in your life. Now, there are other questions people might have. I'm happy to address this at more length after the service. Can a Christian with the Holy Spirit be possessed by an evil spirit? No. Can a Christian still be attacked by Satan who prowls like a lion? Yes. Can a Christian with the Holy Spirit resist Satan? Yes, but come and speak to me. I can, we'll look at the Bible afterwards. But let's continue. How should we respond to the confronting authority of Jesus? Well, in the passage, we see two responses. We see fear and we see faith. Now, the people who tended the pigs went up and rounded everyone they could find in the area. Verse 15. They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon possessed, sitting there dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon possessed man and told about the pigs. Then they began to beg him to leave their region. Now Mark's really clear here. The people heard the eyewitness reports. They saw the evidence of the transformed man from raging beast to self-controlled human being and the conclusion they reach is that the confronting authority of Jesus is too scary. No thank you. Please leave. Now, you would think that if Jesus has the power to transform a person's life like that in that man, that they would have gone back into town, gathered a huge number of people who needed the transforming power of Jesus. Instead, they say no. What a missed opportunity. And what's even more tragic is that Jesus gives them what they want. He gets into his boat. And he leaves after the briefest visit. And in Mark's gospel, we don't hear him returning to the Gerasenes. How sad. What a golden opportunity. And they missed it because of fear. Fear that leads to fear. Now, remember at the start of the passage, they were scared of the demon-possessed man. That's why they had to chain him up. But then Jesus removes the demons from him. Jesus has taken away the need to fear this man. Instead, they swap one fear for another. Now, we're not told exactly why. Maybe it's their livelihood. Maybe I I know the guy who owned those pigs. Maybe Jesus is going to do that to my fishing business. We don't know exactly why, but what it boils down to is fear. How often do you make decisions because of fear? I suspect if you're like me, often scared of what people will think of me, scared of what this is going to cost me, scared of the consequences if I make the wrong decision, scared of change. Are you saying no to Jesus because of fear? Like the people of Gerasenes. Is your fear leading to more fear? Maybe you're wondering... If I say yes to Jesus, can I trust him with my future? If I say yes to Jesus, will it cost me friends at uni? If I say yes to Jesus, do I have to give up my addictions? If I say yes, these are all very real questions, but you need to be honest that what's driving these questions is fear. Now, when you look at Jesus tonight, do you think your fear is warranted? C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Mr. Beaver tells Susan that Aslan is a great lion, now Aslan, uh, from C.S. Lewis's point of view, is the ruler of Narnia, who's portrayed as the Christ-like figure in the story. Now, Susan is surprised, since she assumed Aslan was a man. She then tells Mr. Beaver... I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And she asks Mr. Beaver, is Aslan safe? To which Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. There is a healthy fear of Jesus, isn't there? When you realize that he is king and you are not, He can calm storms. He can drive out thousands of demons. And you would do well to remember that. Jesus is not safe. You cannot control him and contain him to make you feel safe. And to follow this king may well cost you your life. But you should not be terrified of this king. Because King Jesus is always good. He uses his authority for your good. He forgives. He restores. He heals. He demands your life, but he will give you much more in return. You must bow before him, but he will lift you up much higher than you can imagine. From what you've seen tonight of Jesus, will you keep saying no because of fear? Now, in contrast to the fear of the people, the formerly demon-possessed man puts his faith in Jesus. Look at verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. Jesus did not let him, but told him, Go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. I love that line in verse 19, go home to your own people. That's beautiful, isn't it? He can return home now. He can leave the tombs behind. He can join his family and his community. That is how Jesus changes people. His chains are gone. He has been set free from fear to faith. And for this man, what does faith look like? Well, the man knows that he's been saved by Jesus, so he wants to remain with Jesus to follow him wherever he goes. So being a Christian means being someone who wants to remain with Jesus. Faith never forgets the mercy of God in our lives. Being a Christian is never about our goodness. It is always about God's grace, his mercy in saving us through Jesus. Lastly, faith means sharing God's mercy with others. Now, the Decapolis were 10 towns in that region where predominantly non-Jewish people live there. And a group of people from this area, remember, they've already said no to Jesus, but Jesus in his mercy leaves one single missionary to this Gentile area, this man. And Jesus tells him, to proclaim to anyone who will listen the powerful work of Jesus in his life. And the people are amazed. Uh, Five years ago, I went to Cambodia, and my auntie and uncle, who worked there for about 18 years as missionaries, they were celebrating the completion of the New Testament translation in the language of the people group they worked with. And I was there for that purpose. We went to visit one of the villages of this people group, This people group, this particular village, they were formerly animistic. That is, they lived in fear of evil spirits. They sacrificed things to evil spirits. But they've now come to believe the gospel of Jesus. They've come to follow him. That's why the New Testament was being translated for them. And uh, the driver of my bus, as we came into this town, asked one of the men in the village, why do you follow Jesus? Without any hesitation, embarrassment whatsoever, the man replied, because Jesus is more powerful than the forest spirits. No more fear, just faith. Why do you follow Jesus? Because Jesus is more powerful than my dependence on alcohol. Because Jesus is more powerful than my desperate need to be liked. Because Jesus is more powerful than my abusive ex. Because Jesus is more powerful than my mocking lecturer. Because Jesus is more powerful than guilt and shame. Friends, fear can become faith with Jesus. Now, if you're here tonight and you do have faith in Jesus and you know what he has done for you, then be like the man in this passage tonight or like the man from this Cambodian village. Tell others about Jesus. You know, we we talk about evangelism, we talk about sharing your testimony and it's so complicated, isn't it? And here it is so simple. Tell them what Jesus means to you what he's done for you, how he saved you, how he was merciful to you. That's all it is. Some of you tonight are stepping out on a new chapter in a new part of your life. Maybe you've moved to a new country here. You've moved from the country to the city. You've moved into a college at uni. Maybe you've started a new apprenticeship, a new job. Maybe you're sharing house for the first time. Look, I'm, I'm really excited for you and for what's ahead of you. I'm glad you're here at this church and I hope you will stay. Because this is an important chapter of your life. Based on the decisions you make in this chapter, your life could go in very different directions. And we want to help you figure out the most important questions in life. And here they are. Who is Jesus? The confronting authority who can transform your life for the better forever. And how should I respond to him? Fear or faith? Let me pray for us. Gracious Father God, we thank you for the stunning picture that we see in Jesus tonight. Thank you for this passage that reminds us of the confronting authority of Jesus. He is Lord over the demons, over Satan, and he has fought and won a decisive victory on the cross for us. Father, thank you that you have not left us to our sin, to our fleshly desires, to following the ruler of the prince of the, the, of the power of the air, Father. We pray that you will help us to respond to Jesus in faith like this man, Father, in this passage, that we would want to remain with Jesus and speak of how good he has been to us. Gracious Father, we pray for those who are still wrestling with this question, who is Jesus? Please open hearts and eyes and minds to see Jesus clearly. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.